irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to L.A. Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm I'm licensed, certified in EMDR, and as a Reiki Level 2 practitioner, I would love to connect with you as my audience. Please reach out to me through my website. It's nolatherapy.com, n o l a T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com, the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles Therapy. Please email me, Lisa at NOLA Therapy, if you're interested in being my guest, booking sessions with me to be your therapist. I really appreciate all of the downloads through iTunes, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Please keep subscribing to this show so that we can reach more people with messages of health, wellness, and well-being. And as a gift, I'd love for you to receive a free audiobook download from my sponsor, Audible. To do that, you just go to audibletrial.com forward slash allthingstherapy. And please register your email on my website, nolatherapy.com. I have a book coming out in 2019 that I'm really excited about. It's based on the astrological placement of Chiron, which identifies core wounding that limits you and and keeps us repeating old patterns that we don't necessarily want. And there are 12 placements of Chiron in one's astrological chart, 12 woundings of Chiron that I've identified. So please register your email so I can get you that information so you can learn how to heal those wounds through empathy and self-forgiveness. I want to say hello to the Facebook Live audience. This is my first show doing a Facebook Live. So I'm a little nervous, but I figure with some practice, it will get easier. And it doesn't hurt that today I have such an amazing and inspiring guest. In just moments, we are going to be with Tracy Stein. She is a clinical psychologist certified in hypnosis. Additionally, she has a master's in public health. She's a psychologytoday.com expert on integrative medicine. She has been featured in O, the Oprah magazine, has worked for Dr. Oz. She's written for Shape, Bustle, Health Magazine, and Women's Day. She teaches at Teachers College, at Columbia University, and at the Spirituality Mind Body Institute at Columbia University. And today we're discussing this book, if you can see it live. It's The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. And in this book, she combines her expertise in medicine, psychology, spirituality, and intuitive development, along with guided imagery to help people manage pain. Welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. You're welcome. It's such an honor to have you on. I'm, I love your work. And I wonder... Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Where, where do you want to start us with your work and processes? Uh, You know, um, I don't know exactly where I want to start. I mean, I guess just saying a little bit about um, the core theme of the book, maybe, and of my work over the past, 
um, many years now is that it is integrative. And I, I bring that up because it's a term probably people have heard before, but a lot of times people don't know what it means in regard to healthcare. So um, I figure I'll start there. Integrative means drawing from the best of a variety of different disciplines or modalities. So with regard to healthcare, whether it's mental health or physical health, that would be um, conventional things like psychotherapy or medicine um, and more complementary things. And that really depends on the person, what they'll pick, but that could be anything from hypnosis to meditation or yoga, acupuncture, uh, and um, things that fall under that complementary medicine umbrella. Um, I think also at the core of my work and integrative approaches is that they are integrated. And so I emphasize a team approach. I think that's really the future of healthcare in general because I think it puts the patient at the center of uh, that very important wheel and everything else becomes a really important spoke. Every other member of the team helps to support the integrity of that wheel. You know, as I thought about this topic of pain management and just in my experience as a practitioner working with people who are in pain, just there's a lot of doctors that don't want to touch this topic. Even my, my father's an anesthesiologist and retired and now, but some of his colleagues did pain management additionally. And my dad for sure was one of those doctors that didn't want to even venture into that realm because of all the liability. And I think that even people in pain get, um, have like a negative association or connotation with, you know, they just want to get drugs um, instead of really being in some kind of pain that's, that's legitimate. So I wonder how you've encountered this in your practice and, and how you've handled it and kind of spoken in the community about it. So, you know, pain is one of those things that even though it falls under the broad heading of medical illness, there are so many conditions that can generate chronic pain, including um, pain conditions where we really don't know why people have them or we can't find evidence on imaging. And in most cases, you can't just uh, give somebody a blood test or an x-ray and say, you know, exactly why they're in pain. And that's frustrating both for patients and for providers. And so uh, it's, it's understandable, I think, why a lot of providers are uncomfortable working with chronic pain. I think the bigger issue is so many of them aren't trained to do so. We're really still learning so much about pain. But if we, you know, if we don't see pain as a separate discipline, we're, we're really missing a lot of um, both the technology that may be helpful and what the limits are of that technology, but also the experience of the patient. Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges pain patients face is that they often look completely fine or even really good. And so everyone from family members who otherwise might mean well will say, hey, you know, you've had a successful surgery. It's been all this time. How come you're still having pain? And there's kind of this implication that the person is either making it up or not willing to kind of pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And providers can be that way too. And because providers are people, when they feel that they have exhausted everything that they know to treat something, they can really be, you know, skeptical of the patient. And I think a lot of patients are wary, are wary of being perceived as drug-seeking or, um, again, making things up when 
honestly, they really are in pain the vast majority of the time. Just because we don't have the technology to help them as well or understand it fully doesn't mean that their experience is invalid. So I think that's something that I've encountered again and again when patients have told me, um, you know, some of the things that are most challenging for them or what they think the problems are with the system. You know, Dr. Stein, what you're saying is reminding me of, in your book, it was such a great reminder. Somehow it, it just was like, oh, yes, of course that's the case. That that pain, actually, regardless of where we feel it in our physical body, it, it originates in the brain. And so yes. that's part of why it's hard to, you know, see in x-rays or whatever medical technologies that are available to actually see the pain in the body because it does come from the brain. And, and that was like a big aha moment. So it is such a specialization that I think, you know, some practitioners don't know enough about. And I think often when we don't know what is going on, it's just kind of like, oh, you know, just, you know, we become kind of flabbergasted and like, well, that's that's your problem, you know, to the, the person in pain, which I think complicates their experience of being in discomfort, which erodes their sense of well-being, their ability to be a productive employee, partner, friend, parent. So can you talk to us about some of the ways that that pain really infiltrates a person's live, lives and cause, causes problems? Oh, yeah. And, and again, because people look fine so often, it's really hard for people around them, even who mean well, to understand how far-reaching um, you know, pain can be in terms of how it affects other areas of somebody's life besides just physical functioning. Um, you know, most people can imagine that if there's a jackhammer outside their window, it's really irritating. And if you had to do other things like concentrate or get work done or just wanted to relax, it would, it would feel really annoying. But most people cannot imagine a jackhammer that is outside of their window that's going on for months and months and months and years and, and feeling unable to leave the area or get any sort of um, peace from this bothersome, um, distressing thing. And, and that's what it is really like to have chronic pain for most people. And so you'll see people who have problems completing work or schoolwork, um, their relationships suffer. We know that people in chronic pain tend to have higher rates of anxiety and depression, and it makes perfect sense, right? Yes. But... Um, the thing is, we also know from the research that anxiety and depression make pain severity worse and decrease coping. You know, even just doing things like parenting your child can be really difficult when you are in pain. And so, you know, all of the things that we expect people to do normally become much, much harder um, and self-care becomes much harder on top of that. And unfortunately, self-care is even more important when you have a pain condition Absolutely. than it is anyway, normally. And it's, it's important to begin with. So the, the effects of pain are really uh, far-reaching and make everything feel more difficult. I'm curious as to how you started in this field, Dr. Stein, with pain and management and then incorporating mind, body, and spiritual techniques to treat it. So, I mean, for me, my interest in mind-body and um, kind of integrative health goes back a really long time. It goes back into my own childhood probably when, you know, I was a very sickly child and I came from a family with a lot of people with a lot of serious medical illness. And um, I remember even back in the day noticing that people were at doctor's offices a lot but didn't seem to be 
really fully functional. Uh, they still had a lot of symptoms. And granted, you know, this is years ago that the medicine and technology we have now is certainly better. But so I've always had this interest and this curiosity you know, about what things we could do on our own to make us feel better in body and mind and spirit. Um, and, you know, I got a master's degree in public health. I, I've always been interested in health on a population level. And then later on, I decided to do this PhD in clinical psychology because I wanted to be able to work more specifically with individuals. But throughout my training, I worked in um, pediatric oncology settings and, and oh. cardiac surgery settings and um, general oncology settings. And uh, so, you know, I'd been around medical illness, not only on a personal level, but professionally. And then when I decided to do a fellowship, I did a fellowship in pain psychology, which is really just a more specific subset of health psychology. But I saw how powerful mind-body techniques could be. And one of the nice things about them is that, you know, you don't have the side effects you have from drugs, devices, or surgeries. Those things are important, but you know, there there are specific costs associated with them that we don't see with things like meditation and guided imagery and hypnosis or encouraging people to be more physically active or encouraging them to adopt a um, an anti-inflammatory diet or encouraging them to find sources of personal meaning in their lives. And so that was really important to me. It felt it just it just seemed to be the right fit. And so I've stayed with that. You know, I think we're in sync because as you were speaking, the thought that kept popping up in my mind was to ask you more about the role of hypnosis since you're certified as a clinical hypnotist. And that's not something I know a lot about. I think there's misconceptions. At some point in my career, I thought being hypnotized is made to do things that you don't want to do. And I've since learned that's not at all what hypnosis is. So can you talk to us about the role of hypnosis in treating chronic pain? Yeah, I'd love to. It's actually, hypnosis is one of my favorite tools in my professional toolbox. It's something that I use myself. It's something that has a good evidence base for its use in a variety of things, not just chronic pain, but hypnosis actually uh, has a lot of research data supporting its use in chronic pain, which is terrific. So I'm glad you mentioned the misconceptions because many people believe that hypnosis means um, you know, controlling somebody right. or making them do something against their will or only weak-minded people can benefit from hypnosis or you know, that it's not real. And none of these things are true. What hypnosis is, is a state of awareness characterized by enhanced focus on something specific and attention to that thing and decreased attention to everything else at the time and also enhanced uh, receptivity to hypnotic suggestion. What most people don't realize is that we all go in and out of hypnotic states every day. Even, I would say even people who are low hypnotizables probably go in and out of these states all of the time. So uh, most people who drive cars have had the experience of being in the car and being deeply absorbed in a memory or something that they want to do, or a conversation that they had, and it can be very multi-sensory. So if you were at a party before you got in the car, 
you might see the people at the party, hear a conversation you had, maybe even change it to be the conversation you wish you had. Maybe you could smell someone's perfume that you liked or didn't or taste some of the food. And all of the while, as you're deeply engrossed in this multisensory inner experience, another part of you would be driving the car. And then maybe five minutes later, you would say, I, how, how is that even possible? That part of me didn't even feel like it was here. But that's an everyday trance state. And it's similar to what happens when we're in a movie theater. And basically, we're sitting next to complete strangers in a pleather seat, looking at a screen populated by millions of dots, looking at actors play roles that engage our emotions. We feel we're part of the action. You know, our hearts race, or we become frightened, or we um, become sentimental, depending on what the movie is about. We know that the experience of the movie is not real, but yet we are absorbed in it to the point that we discount everything else around us for the time being. And it's, it's, it's a choice. And hypnosis involves participation and choice and collaboration on the part of both the person undergoing hypnosis when it's formal and the provider. So where it might feel kind of random or incidental in these everyday trances, when you're working with somebody who's trained properly, you're going to discuss these things very consciously ahead of time, what your goals are, what you hope will change, what imagery resonates with you. And then you partner with that hypnosis professional to help you get into a more receptive state, let everything else go to the wayside for the time being, um, again, to achieve this goal that you've both discussed very consciously ahead of time. So that's kind of hypnosis in a nutshell. So if I'm here, when, yeah. do you mind if I jump in to ask you something? No, please okay. do. Okay, awesome. If I'm hearing you accurately, it, hypnosis is the difference between that kind of dissociative state is how I think of it when we might be driving and get somewhere and just kind of, oh, I, I don't really remember exactly how I got here, especially if it's a familiar route to the grocery or to pick up your kids from school, that it's the difference between being in a dissociative state unaware and being in a state, you know, with mindfulness, with presence, like being in the now with the practitioner. Is that accurate that you're drawing on that power of, say, dissociation, but in a way that's more clear and determined and thoughtful to help shift patterns and consciousness? Maybe, maybe a way of thinking about it is that it's uh, collaborative and deliberate dissociation okay. when you're with a provider. That because there, there is this agreement or this kind of script that the two of you know is going to unfold. But for people who are highly hypnotizable, you may feel just as checked out or even more when you're in an office with a provider, you know, comfortably seated on their couch and just letting everything else, you know, go far away for the time being. So you might not even have, you know, people who are very highly hypnotizable might not even have a lot of recollection of the middle part of their hypnosis section, although their unconscious mind is paying attention and, and knows very well what they were talking about. But people often remember the beginning and the end of hypnosis sessions better. Okay. So there still is that dissociative quality, but it doesn't have to be something that's super intense. I mean, you might just feel relaxed and daydreaming in session. I mean, just as you might have a less intense hypnotic experience in the car or at sure. the movies. Sure. Um, with something like chronic pain, 
what a provider might do is help direct you to find a place of neutrality or comfort in your body. So say somebody comes in and they have a broken ankle and it's very painful. You might direct them to find an area of neutrality and it might be the tip of their nose or the lobe of an ear. And as they allow themselves to focus more intently on the feeling of neutrality or comfort in that particular body part, the ankle pain may kind of feel very far away or be diminished, or there might be times when they're not even conscious of it at all. And using um, somebody's own internal imagery, you can help direct them to visualize or experience that place of neutrality or comfort in a very multi-sensory way. Maybe it's a color or a shape or a texture and bring it to the rest of the body, including the part that's been uncomfortable. And that it sounds so simple, but it can be very effective. And you can also help people change how distressing the pain feels, um, change their perspective so that they can be curious rather than alarmed by it, because a lot of times people become very anxious in the face of pain. So there's actually a lot you can do with something like pain. And again, the research shows that hypnosis is effective as a pain management tool. And so then from that, that, space that's created in the session with a practitioner, can the participant then use that outside of the session in their daily lives to help manage pain as they experience it? That is such a great and important question. I'm so glad you asked because absolutely. And really all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, right? Because the person has to have some level of agreement to even get into that hypnotic state for the most part. At-home practice is really helpful for hypnosis, just like if you see a personal trainer at the gym, you're going to want to be exercising outside of those personal training sessions as well. You're going to develop that muscle, that strength, and that coordination over time in the same way um, with hypnosis, just as you would, again, if you were training something physically. So people can do that through, um, they can tape record their, or, or record their sessions on their phones and listen to them at home, or they can learn self-hypnotic techniques to get into a more relaxed and comfortable state and use their own imagery. Um, they can use uh, audio programs that they download from iTunes or somewhere else. So absolutely, it's important to do it on your own as well. And then you offer guided imagery tools, correct? Don't you have a... a- program available? I do. I actually have 11 different audio programs on a variety of topics, and um, they're available in all the places you would normally find audio programs like iTunes and Amazon, etc. But, um, you know, I like them, and I do them because I think they're helpful. And what I will tell people is, you know, go listen to a sample. It doesn't cost you anything. If there's someone else whose work resonates with you more, great. Use that. Use the thing you're more likely to use because you enjoy it. Um, But, yes, I do have audio programs. Thank you for asking. Yes. So, again, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm curious about when you're working with someone in managing their pain, is it a kind of self-reported scale? What are the outcome measurements for how are these techniques and treatments working versus not working? How do you measure that with someone to know that they're feeling better and getting better? Yeah, so in session, I will ask somebody, often using a numerical rating scale. So people are probably used to their providers saying, you know, on a scale of zero to 10, with zero being no pain and 
10 being the worst you've ever experienced, yes. you know, where is your pain now? And I may do that at the beginning of a session. And then if we do something like hypnosis or biofeedback or mindfulness meditation, I'll ask them again later in the session, you know, where now on that same scale are you noticing your symptoms? And that works for other things too, like nausea or anxiety, um, depression. I mean, you can, you can use that same assessment for other things. We'll also notice over time too, is the person more ambulatory? Are they able to engage in activities that are important to them more than they were previously? Um, you know, has their medication use changed? Um, oh, in yeah. some way That's to reflect that they're feeling better. And so there are lots of different ways we can assess whether something's helpful and, and including also just saying, you know, how did that feel? This is something that you feel is helpful to you. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Dr. Stein, we're going to do a quick one-minute break to my sponsors, and I'll be right back with you. Indeed, listening is the new reading. With Audible, you can listen to an unlimited amount of books at home, in your car, at the gym, anywhere on the go. With over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from, for you, the listener of all things therapy, Audible is offering you a free audiobook download and a month-long subscription for you to try them out. Visit audibletrial.com forward slash all things therapy now and enjoy. Do you want to help yourself and friends find a purpose in life? Then you are in the right place and be a part of the crowdfunding campaign of patreon.com forward slash all things therapy with Lisa Tahir as she initiates a one-on-one interaction with inspiring authors, healing experts, and spiritual directors. Join the League of Heroes of this generation by contributing your quota between a dollar up to a hundred dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash all things therapy. Let's make the world free of suicide, poverty, depression, and in all, make the world a better place for everyone. Welcome back. I am with Dr. Tracy Stein discussing her book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management. Dr. Stein, I have a question for you again that came up during the break. So a statistic that you offer us in your book is talking about over 100 million Americans suffer from a chronic pain condition. And is this typical as far as other countries, other parts of the world, or do we have a higher amount of pain? And if so, why? That's a great question, and I'm not exactly sure. Okay. I can tell you that worldwide, the the estimate is that about 1.5 billion people have a chronic wow. pain condition. So, I mean, certainly chronic pain is prevalent, and it's prevalent throughout the world. Okay. Wow. So what you're doing is really a lot of important. People. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of people. So what do you think is important next to discuss with our listening audience? So one thing I think is important for people to keep in mind is that regardless of what their bodies feel like now, almost everybody can feel better in some way. And it's, it's worth doing things to take good care of your health, even if you're never going to have, quote, perfect health. I think sometimes people can you know, very understandably get stuck in mourning the loss of the body that they had and all that came with it, whether it's appearance or the function or, um, you know, all of the other things that happen when you, when you have an injury or an illness, 
And um, we can also really unfairly compare ourselves to the self that we were before, but also to how other people are doing with the same issue. And it's very natural to do so, but it's just important to be able to step back and just focus on the now. And that's where something like mindfulness can be really helpful. Yes. You know, training the mind to help you be in the present moment with, you know, whatever it is, without feeling you have to judge it or push it away or cling to it. Um, Because it's the only moment we ever have. And the now is where all change takes place. And um, in this moment, in the now, people need to remember that they are worth taking good care of. And it's not about doing it in in a way that's perfect because there's no such thing. And it's not about comparing yourself again to how anyone else is doing it. And wherever you are in the journey now, your journey will be different tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And the only thing you really need to worry about is this moment. And I don't even mean worry about, but focus on. You know, I think what you just said was so important as far as that piece around comparison. Typically, I tend to conceptualize, and I think others do as well, that when we compare, we're comparing ourselves to someone else. But in the treatment and management of chronic pain, I can totally see how, how one might be reflecting back on the person that they were before they were in pain and feeling that gap being so large and, and difficult and you know probably just wanting to go back to when they didn't feel pain and how that in itself can produce emotional pain, comparing yourself to who you were. And instead you offer, um, I know in your top 10 things about integrative pain management, just definitely about mindfulness, being curious about even what this pain is offering you to learn, um, like some Buddhist philosophy. So how do you help people when they are getting kind of entrenched in that pattern of, of comparing themselves to how they used to be? You know, I, I try to help them find something that they can be grateful for in this moment. And even if they're going to say, well, right now everything feels really difficult, even if it's the memory of one good thing or something very simple. You know, most of the really impactful moments in our lives aren't huge, and I think people forget that. And regardless of what's going on, you know, somebody being kind to you Mm. can be transformative, but it's a very simple thing. A stranger doing something nice for you, like letting you go ahead of them in the checkout line because you have what looks like more than you can carry. You know, we can find things in any given day that we can appreciate and be grateful for. And, And the research actually shows that people tend to have a greater sense of well-being when they can find things that they can be grateful for. So that's, that's one way. Again, mindfulness practice for those who are willing to engage in it um, can be really healing. It can be really difficult for people sometimes in the beginning because we're so used to having our minds be so busy at every moment, almost like there's virtue to that. Um, oh, right, yeah. And just helping people be present. You know, also I hear in what you're saying underneath it, just themes of self-forgiveness and compassion towards oneself and the body that we're in right now and and really being loving kind. You talk about loving kindness in your book. Can you share some of that with us? So, you know, loving kindness is uh, a practice that is uh, a meditative practice where we can direct kindness and love and compassion to ourselves, 
to other people, including people with whom we've had some difficulty, but also ones who, you know, may be unknown to us, you know, the entire universe. We can really extend loving kindness to the entire planet. Yes. And the, the practice can be so incredibly healing, especially the part that's difficult, the part of extending loving kindness to someone who maybe has wronged you. Um, mm-hmm. We, you know, especially in these times today when people are so stressed, um, we are a nation divided. It can be very difficult to find compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. We can be compassionate without feeling we need to change someone else or ourselves in that moment. Um, so, you know, mindfulness in general and the practice of self-compassion um, foster a sense of self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others, of acceptance in the present moment, whatever it is, and understanding, you know, when we're talking about ourselves, that we, like everyone else, we're human and we don't have to be perfect and we can afford ourselves the same kindness that we afford other people. And just by doing these simple things, I mean, in addition to helping manage physical pain, we can manage the emotional pain that so many of us are struggling with. Absolutely. Um, it, it just creates a sense of ease and inner freedom that's hard to articulate if you haven't done it. Um, but I think probably a lot of your listeners know what I, what I mean by saying that. Yes. And I think as well, the role of affirmations and self-affirmation, like every day I tell myself I love and approve of me. I borrowed it from Louise Hay and just the messages to really speak into our lives and into our minds and brains, just things that are, are really supporting us to be in this world. Absolutely. I, and I love that you brought up affirmations because, again, this is a tool that sounds so simple and yet it can be so powerful. So many of us engage in negative self-talk even without realizing it. Um, I did a, a workshop recently for some graduate students and um, talking about the, the inner critic and mm-hmm. kind of getting to know that inner critic better and understanding what role it's been trying to fulfill for us and where it might come from and whose voice it may sound like. And, you know, most of us in the face of that inner criticism, again, we, we try very hard to push it away or we rebel against it, or we hold it too tightly to us, and we use it to kind of beat ourselves up or prove that we're not okay. And um, it's kind of important to not run away from that, but to look at that part of ourselves and understand, well, what is this trying to teach me? Because I feel like the inner critic and and a lot of our self-defeating thoughts, either they're tools that a part of us has developed for what seemed like good reasons at the time. Right. So for some people, they were able to get in touch with the fact that their inner critic keeps them from messing up or it keeps them from slacking off or it keeps at bay the criticism of a parent who is really strict or whatever role it serves. It's important to know as we do that, we can use things like meditation or guided imagery or self-hypnosis or creative writing. There are a lot of ways to do it, but to get in touch with our inner ally. I think the inner ally is the part of us that can create these really beautiful and healing affirmations and can support us even, again, when we're not perfect and, and understands we don't need to be perfect to have worth. So I think affirmations are a beautiful tool for doing that. Yes, I'm thinking amen as you're saying everything you just said. 
<laughs> so kind of a, a, a portion of your work I wanted to discuss because last night I was flying to Los Angeles from New Orleans and I had some of your materials out, you know, as I'm sitting there in the flight and the woman next to me started reading some of it and she was really drawn to how you talk about nutrition and, and healing pain. Can you talk to us about that? Because that kind of, um, you know, I, I think of nutrition as, you know, diet, exercise, but but the role in treating chronic pain. Will you share some insights with us? Sure. Um, and I love that she was getting something out oh, yeah, of it. That makes it. me feel yeah. really good. Um, so, you know, we as a society tend to eat foods that are um, that have a long shelf life, that are conveniently packaged, that are things we can eat quickly while doing other things. And, and I, you know, I understand why we do that. I do that. Everybody does that to some extent. But a lot of the food we consume today is pro-inflammatory or it's so removed from what it would naturally be that it's, it's not as nutritious or it doesn't contain fiber or it contains a bunch of chemicals that aren't so great for us. So a, a good pain management diet is a, is a diet that is diverse um, and relies on a lot of, you know, fruits and vegetables and things in their natural state. And, and it avoids things that are, you know, really artificial or things that we know cause inflammation. So I'm thinking, um, you know, sometimes you might pick up like a package of ice cream and it'll say something like it has polysorbate 80 or some other emulsifier. Mm -hmm. And there's research showing that that increases um, inflammation in the gut. And in mice, um, they were more prone to inflammatory bowel disease from consuming um, emulsifiers like uh, polysorbate 80. So, you know, in general, we really haven't evolved to eat a high, highly chemically laden diet. Yes. And so the diet that is helpful and healthful for us in general is also usually better for chronic pain. Now, that said, for certain chronic pain conditions, you're going to want to adjust your diet even further. So if you have, a, a, again, a bowel disorder where you can't eat raw food or you can't eat nuts and seeds or things that are really spicy, that might be important for you in managing your pain, whereas for somebody else it's a non-issue. Um, if you have um, chronic bladder pain, you may avoid, again, things that are um, very spicy, but also things that are carbonated or really acidic, um, you know, vit high vitamin C supplements or, or foods. So, um, you know, some people with rheumatoid arthritis will find that they do better when they don't eat nightshade vegetables. So tomatoes, potatoes, peppers, eggplant. But each individual will um, be well served by paying attention to how they feel when they eat certain things versus when they don't. And again, trying to make things as unprocessed as possible. Lots of people with chronic pain have sleep issues. Mm. So if you know that's you, limiting things like alcohol and caffeine and being mindful of when you have certain things or like your last cup of coffee or if you have it at all, that's going to be important. So a healthy diet in general, but then with additional kind of tweaks uh, depending on what you're dealing with physically. So it's really for the the person, a deep dive into their their body and how it works. And, and I see that that might be frustrating at first to someone to find out, you know, it doesn't serve my body well, say, to drink coffee. But I imagine that once they're able to find other things that they actually enjoy eating and drinking, that they might feel some more hope. How do you help them with with that, like, because usually I think people meet dietary changes with like, oh, 
this sucks. So how, how, <laughs> <laughs> how do you help people with that? It's one of the hardest things for people to change, usually not always, but, um, you know, when, you know, when you have a pain condition, just like anything else, again, I think the things that are going to cause the problem and the things that will help solve the problem, I think of as spokes on a wheel. So it's usually more than one thing. Um, I will ask people what they will hope will change generally about how they feel. And then together we can come up with a list of things that they believe or they know will potentially make a difference. And the more of those things they're willing to do, the greater the difference, you know, that they might experience. But sometimes they're just not willing to start with that. And they might be able to or willing to start with something else. And so if you get somebody to sign on to start with something that they're open to doing, yes. once they see success with that, I think they can be more amenable to doing the other things. Yeah. But with diet, you know, just like with anything, maybe they will think of 20 things they want to change about their diets. It's, if they start with one, that's huge. Absolutely. Start with one and stick with one and, and find a way to deal with the part of you, the percentage of you that is willing and enlist that part to help you when the part of you that is frightened or anxious or resentful or otherwise resistant says, ah, I w why should I have to do this? Other people don't. And I imagine as the individual starts to feel better that that's self-reinforcing to keep up that new habit and then maybe add a second, you know, dietary change to keep building on the first. Absolutely. And enlisting support, too. For some yeah. people, having other people in their lives who are willing to commit to this change, even if they don't, quote, you know, have to, that can be helpful. I think it's really hard for people to make changes um, when everybody else in the house is still eating the thing right. that is very emotionally comforting to this person and the person's supposed to just not have it. It's kind of like when you have a relative who's newly diagnosed as diabetic. If everybody else is still eating candy mm -hmm. and there are bags of it in the house and that's a trigger food for this person, it is really, really hard for that person to make change. So getting other people on board and, and willing to partner with you, I think, can make a big difference too. Yes. So the last kind of area before we are done with our show today that I found super interesting about you and your work, and I think makes you very unique, is the role of our intuition and how you, you're you an intuitive and how you employ those methods and processes um, in helping people to heal. Can you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, so, you know, I more recently outed myself about that in a more public way, <laughs> yeah. but it's been a part of my life, um, I'm going to say since childhood. And over the last 20 years or so, I've spent more time trying to more formally develop my intuition and be better able to recognize what really is intuitive guidance. In psychotherapy, I think what happens is you, know, you have two people who are engaged in this more kind of intimate type of discussion. And what I think happens is people's energy fields open up, mm -hmm. right? We're comfortable with someone and it's easier to connect with them probably on an energetic level, not just um, psychological and emotional. So for me, I've noticed that um, I often in my own body or via an image or some other type of knowing will have a sense of what's coming in a session or what's going on with someone. Um, I, in a recent article that I had appear in Thrive Global, 
I talked about how with um, one patient in particular, whenever this person was about to have a really serious crisis, a serious medical and psychiatric crisis, because they used to kind of come together for this person, um, they would come into my office for a few sessions in a row and have this crazy fog around them. And I remember Mm. thinking I was losing my eyesight. (laughs) And And then I thought, okay, but they're the only thing in this room that has this weird, dense fog around them. And I just, in the beginning, paid attention because I wasn't sure exactly what to do with that. What I think my role is in psychotherapy is to be a good psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I try to be mindful that people aren't coming to me for psychic reading, which I don't do professionally anyway. But what I did do is pay more attention to the other indicators that something was amiss, either physically or psychologically or both. And because I work um, very collaboratively, I would let the other members of their team know, hey, so-and-so came in and they reported this and this, or this is what I noticed about their their speech or their appearance or their mood, um, which I would have done anyway. Right. But sometimes it makes the therapy um, process more efficient. So I think therapists can use these tools to um, enhance or expedite some of their work, but we need to be thoughtful about how we do that and also make sure our egos don't get in the way right. and also realize that, you know, remember that nothing is 100% accurate, not, not, not intuition, not our psychotherapeutic judgment, not medicine, not anything. So it's really important to be thoughtful in how we use this tool with our other tools that we have. You know, I've really enjoyed our time together. I feel like I could keep talking to you Thank you. How, <laughs> Likewise. Awesome. How can listeners reach out to you in addition to buying your book, The Everything Guide to Integrative Pain Management? Thank you. So they can find me again on iTunes under Tracy Stein. Um, they can find me on Twitter or on Facebook. I have a professional page or go to my website, which is uh, www.drtracystein.com. And Tracy is T-R-A-C-I. Awesome. And just lastly, what is next for you, Dr. Stein? What do you see that you want to kind of put out there? So I'm working on a book on uh, tireless caregivers, and I have a survey to that effect on my website. So people who take care of everyone else to the exclusion of taking care of themselves and um, offering tools for, to help people set healthy limits and still love themselves. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for being my guest. And I've just loved having this conversation. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much, Lisa. You're welcome. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That concludes my show today with Dr. Tracy Stein on her book on integrative pain management. You can find her at drtracystein.com. Tracy is T-R-A-C-I. Please listen in next week as I bring you another episode. And don't forget, if you have not, go to nolatherapy.com, N-O-L-A-T-H-E-R-A-P-Y.com, and click on that link to register your email so I can have your email to release more information about my book coming out and guests coming up and everything awesome. I hope you all have a great weekend. Bye. listening to All Things Therapy.